Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I started this show to share insights on how other composers and songwriters work. You can find out more about these artists and hear each episode at ComposerQuest.com. The theme music you're hearing right now was created using only computer code by this episode's guest, Ted Moore. I think there's something really interesting and satisfying about setting up a little machine with like 10 lines of code, clicking go, and then just sitting back and listening. As a composer, I know it's easy to get caught in little details when you're writing a piece. Ted shares some of his tips on seeing the bigger picture in your music. Composers often get really hung up on, well, what is the motive and how am I developing it? One thing I tell my students is, you know, it can't really be about that. Those are the tools, but the piece is to be about a story an idea, or about an emotion. And finally in this episode, we get to talk some philosophy. One of Ted's newest pieces is based on Plato's Allegory of the Cave. When exiting the cave and going into the sunlight, into wisdom or knowledge, he says that, you know, your eyes might be impaired for a period of time. So the piece itself, for me, it was just about what are two very different things that I can juxtapose to try and show that transition Aren't we all, as composers and songwriters, just trying to make our way out of the cave and gain some wisdom? Yes, I think so. So anyways, I hope this episode helps. On to my talk with Ted Moore. Ted, thanks for coming on to Composer Quest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we will have a lot to nerd out about in this interview. That sounds great. Ted does a lot of electronic experimental music, but a fair amount of instrumental music, too. Yeah. A lot of your pieces use a mix of electronics and acoustic instruments. Something that I've started to think a lot about when writing for live instruments and live electronic processing is that the electronics allow for there to be like a whole nother agent or a whole nother character so that... The performer can do something, and then the electronics can respond, or vice versa. To set up that conversation is, I think, a really cool... Yeah. I was thinking about that as I was listening to Fiery Walls. Yeah. It seemed like the electronics were directly affected by your trumpet part. Yeah, absolutely. When the trumpet player is playing... And the computer's interpreting those yeah. notes. How do you go about writing the code that goes into analyzing your trumpet lines and spitting something out? I wouldn't use the word interpret for the computer. I think you're being too kind to the computer because the computer is actually really dumb. It only does things that I tell it to do, right? When the trumpet is playing something, I push a button. Or actually, the in this piece, the performer presses a pedal. And... A couple things that happen. One that happens often is that it records the trumpet player. It records about three, four seconds of the, just the trumpet sound. And then what it does is it takes that and it will play back small snippets of that, like between 10 and 50 milliseconds. It'll play back these really small snippets and overlap them so that it sounds like a continuous sound. And sometimes it'll play it back at a slightly faster rate or a slightly slower rate, or it'll change um, where it's playing in the, st- in the panning spectrum. 
and you put all, you get all them sort of varied enough and play them back and it creates this other sound. It sort of sounds like a trumpet, but it doesn't really sound like a trumpet. So that's the technique, that's called granular synthesis that I was using a lot in that piece. That piece is actually about Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, which is a short story where this guy gets put in this dungeon and there's a pit that he doesn't want to fall in and he gets tied up and there's a pendulum that's a big blade swinging across his chest, like getting closer and closer. So the pendulum happens when that granulated trumpet sound moves across the stereo pan. You can hear it sort of creep in on one side and it goes, you know, and you get that Doppler effect as well. So you, it, feel, it really feels like it's rushing by in the stereo field. So the program you've been using, Super Collider. Yeah. I thought the one I use, Max MSP, was like the programmer's language. But then I just downloaded Super Collider, and it is literally lines of code that end up as music somehow. Correct. Uh, how did you get started being interested in that? Well, my first dive into this world of programming for audio processing was Pure Data, which is like Max MSP, but it's the free version, which nice. is why I picked it. And so that's where I cut my teeth on like programming. And so I used that for a couple of years and that was, you know, I, I did some stuff with that that I thought was pretty cool. And then I met some people who use Super Collider, or one guy in particular who you super clatter and I just loved his music. And I thought, well, I should check that out. <laughs> a buddy in town, we sort of learned it together. You know, we just would meet once a week and update each other on what we had been working on. And I found it really powerful. The actual interaction of me sitting down and typing the code and sort of how quickly I could change things in the code, I felt just a lot of potential, like... I could come up with some awesome stuff and it might not take too long, you know, adjusting the code here and there. So that sort of creative excitement that I felt while using it was the thing that I think most attracted me to it. Sure. I think I've seen a video of someone using Super Collider where they're actually changing the code as the music's going. Yeah. Do you ever try that? When I'm composing and when I'm testing things out, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just changing the code constantly. But in live performance, I don't do that. And people do do that, these live coding performances. But then that performance sort of becomes about the code and about the skill of the composer to quickly manipulate the code. But I'm a little more interested in having that sort of fourth wall separating the audience from the stage and letting the audience sort of be taken in the world of the piece and not be constantly informing them of some detail. I don't know. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. How has coding the music changed how you think about composing? That's a great question. And, and I have a good answer, I think. <laughs> um, I was actually, when I was writing my master's thesis, I played the MIDI playback for a buddy of mine. And he said, you know, it sounds like an electronic piece. But there were no electronics in the piece. And what he meant by that was, I think what he meant by that was that there are these processes that get put in place and then they keep unfolding. 
and over time change in some way, you know, and things sort of fade in and out over the top of each other. And that's when I realized, oh, that is affecting my compositional process because in electronic music, especially using programs like SuperCollider, you can set processes in motion and sort of let them unfold and have them manipulate over time, either with long trajectories or with randomization. I really like the idea of composing things that, like in nature, can kind of grow organically and randomly somewhat, but still based on these rules. And I think you can have a more connected piece overall if you try that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, and it's nice and super clatter to be able to write like 10 lines of code and click go and get something to that effect. I think there's something really interesting and satisfying about setting up a little machine to do a thing with 10 lines of code, clicking go, and then just sitting back and listening. That's a Brian Eno kind of concept. Yeah, totally. I remember reading a quote by him. He said something like, I enjoy planning things much more than I do actually carrying them out. So that's kind of his mentality too. So have you taken those ideas, this like organic kind of composition, have you applied that to music that live performers are going to play too? Yeah, I have. You know the piece, Contus in Memory of Benjamin Britten by Arvo Pert? Yeah. It's all descending A minor scales, right? And they start in the upper register of the instruments and they move downward and fill out the spectrum and then end up in the lower register. And so that piece is sort of that trajectory, right? It's just about getting from here to there with one process that unfolds over all of those minutes. I think that's how I've been applying it to my instrumental writing. What is the overall trajectory of this piece or of this section? How long am I going to take to get there? And what is the mechanism that's going to bring me there? Sure. Yeah, Arvo Parrott, I remember playing one of his pieces in orchestra and our director had played the recording of it. And I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard in orchestra. Yeah. But I have to be honest, playing it was not as fun as listening to it. Yeah. How do you keep the things that are very mathematical interesting for performers? That's a good question. You know, when a computer is playing this type of music, the computer doesn't get bored, right? But keeping, you know, the human performers engaged, I think, is really important. And I think it's about what are the small changes that are happening how is this scale or this chord slightly different from the chord they've already played five times in a row, you know? Giving them small variations that they have to pay attention to, but also I hope are interesting. Mm-hmm. And I like I also like to think about, you know, what are they actually going to do with their instrument? How are they going to produce this sound? What is the experience going to be like for them? And I think that is good for a few reasons. One is that, you know, then it feels idiomatic to play, I hope, so that it'll feel natural and then they can focus on other things like the emotional content. And I also think it's interesting because then if you think about, okay, this person's hand is here at this time and their left hand is here, they could also be using this finger to hit that string. 
but it's about opening up those possibilities, you know. So they're going to be in this position, they're going to be making this sound. What else could they do? They could also be playing these other strings, or they could be pitzing the string with their left hand. Or, you know, the bow is going to be um, sulpant. For me, it's about, you know, what is actually physically taking place there, and is there some way I can take advantage of that to make this moment even more interesting? Your newest piece is a string quartet? Yeah, string quartet and super clatter. Okay. How did you go about writing that? So the piece is called Gilgamesh and Enkidu, based on the Epic of Gilgamesh and these two friends that, you know, Enkidu dies and Gilgamesh goes on a long journey to try and find a way to bring Enkidu back to life and eventually doesn't. He eventually finds what he needs, but then loses it and doesn't get to bring Enkidu back to life. This string quartet is like 70 minutes long. So I mapped out, okay, what are the movements going to be? On the broadest scale, what's happening here? You know, they meet. Second movement, Enkidu dies. Third movement, Gilgamesh mourns his death fourth movie, you know, etc. And so once I got that structure lined up, then I zoomed in on each of the movements, and I was like, okay, what's going to happen in this movement? What needs to happen here in order for the story to continue? So the way that I wrote it and the way that I generally write pieces is I just work from the top down. Like, what is the largest conceptual form of this piece going to be? And then within that, there are these sections. Within those sections, what needs to happen and I keep moving down until at the bottom I'm writing every staccato and every detail. So, hmm. Do you come up with motives that end up throughout the whole piece kind of coming back? Yeah, yeah. And usually in those initial stages, not only that large formal conceptual work happens, but also some ideas about what are the musical materials that are going to hold this piece together. And a lot of times those are motives. And so I'll come up with these three notes or whatever my main motive that feels like this piece or feels like this intention. And then as I draw out the form, I'll like write in motive A here, just to keep in mind where those motives should be happening. So I saw that you also have taught composition and theory. Yes, yeah. How do you approach teaching that? Yeah, teaching composition is really hard because there are so many important things to think about. And it's hard to try and teach them all. A lot of times students are learning theory at the same time. And so when they compose, they run straight to a five-line staff and a piano and that's not really the way that I work. And I, I think it's not as good of a way to work, which is my opinion. I don't know that I can actually say that. But one of the things I try and do is I try to get them to think more large scale and conceptually and formally about the piece that they're writing. And that can be really hard to do because they are so detail oriented in their theory studies. But so we listen to a lot of music and we talk a lot about form. Do you have tips for people about form 
Yeah, there's a, you know, ABA is the, you know, Sonata Allegro form, right? It's been around for a very long time. It's been used many, many times. But that's because it's really effective. I'm not saying everybody go write ABA pieces, but, you know, it's clear. It gives the listener something to latch on to, and then it takes the listener on a little adventure. And then at the end, it, like, reassures the listener, yeah, you were right all along. This is the thing. This is the motive. Thinking about those sort of things in the abstract, why is ABA so darn lovable? And acknowledging that, I think, is really good. And then use it. You know, it's a great form. But once you think about those things, okay, well, then how am I going to break that? So maybe it's just binary form. Maybe it's just A, B. Then what is that? You know, why did I choose to just have A, B? And how am I going to make that experience meaningful for the listener? Because they're not going to get a return of A. And so maybe B is so exciting that one doesn't need A again because they have kind of forgotten about A and are now consumed by B. And so the piece can end there. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I think my pieces end up being A, B, C, D, E. Yeah. Maybe a little bit A at the end. Right, I know. Um, (laughs) When you're doing like a 70-minute piece or something, how do you develop ideas in an interesting way? Well, the 70-minute string quartet, I mean, it's six movements. And those movements range anywhere from like four minutes to like 12 minutes. And so it was about writing those movements as individually compelling pieces and then putting those movements in an order and finding, you know, the end of one movement, how does that affect the beginning of the next movement? Finding those relationships so that the movements hang together and flow well together. You know, like the third movement, there's a fugue and a canon and a return of the fugue. So, you know, that's sort of one environment, very tonal, very detailed counterpoint. And then the movement that comes right after that is this long cello solo on the octatonic scale. And then after that is this seven-minute piece that's like four and a half minutes of just electronic playback buildup, and then like 30 seconds of strings playing, and then like another three minutes of just electronic sounds. You know, so for me it was how do I keep someone interested and engaged for 70 minutes? How do I make these movements individually compelling as pieces? How do I link them together to tell the story and hang together as one unit? I like the idea, though, too, of having it in a longer piece, a lot of diversity of sounds and themes. Yeah. Yeah, but it is just figuring out how to tie it all together in a way that makes sense. One of the things that I tell my students is, and this might be a cynical attitude towards the last hundred years of music or parts of it. But, you know, there are people in the history of our tradition who are just really focused on the motive. And I think that that's something that gets taught in music history and in music theory classes. And so composers often get really hung up on, well, what is the motive and how am I developing it? Which I think is really important, actually. Uh, Motive for me is more than pitch order. You know, it's emotional content or expressive gesture or timbral sound or extended technique that's memorable. But I think one thing I tell my students is, you know, it can't really be about that. Those are the tools, but the piece has to be about something else. It has to be about a story or about an idea 
or about an emotion. It can't just be about the pitch motive. That's a tool you use to tell the story. Maybe we could talk about eyes may be impaired. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I liked about that one is there's a real interesting juxtaposition of like this nebulous thing and then suddenly the piano breaks into like a Bach style fugue. So that piece is about Plato's allegory of the cave. When exiting the cave and going into the sunlight, into you know, wisdom or knowledge. He says that, you know, your eyes might be impaired for a period of time because when you go into the bright sun, you know, you squint and you can't really see for a while. So it takes you a while to adjust to this new way of understanding the world with the philosophical wisdom that he is describing. But he also says that when you go from the sunlight back into the cave, that your eyes also have to adjust, and so you can't see, and you fumble around in the dark, and it takes you a while to adjust to that way of understanding the world. Which I think is a really interesting thing for him to say, because you could see him saying, you know, once you get into the wisdom, it takes you a while to adjust. But he also says, if you go back, that's a transition that you have to deal with as well. And one of the things that I take away from this is that perhaps both ways of understanding the world are equally valid or equally usable. It's not necessarily about which one is superior, but it's about moving between them is sort of what the lesson might be. That it's not about leaving the cave and staying out there. It's about going back and forth and giving yourself a more broad and therefore more usable understanding of the world. And it's about that process of going back and forth, which can be a difficult process because your eyes may be impaired. Yeah. (laughs) So the piece itself uh, is this whole opening section of this sort of nebulous, um, you know, it starts with the person pounding on the strings inside the piano. So it's like this growing thing of overtones. And it's just nebulous, a lot of percussion. Not much tonal content at all. In fact, very little piano. And when the piano does play, it's sort of this atonal meandering line. And then the piece sort of breaks down, and then there's this Bach fugue, quite deliberately in the style of Bach, although all composed by me, not composed by Bach. And for me, it was just about, you know, what are two very different things that I can juxtapose to try and show that transition and what that might be like going either direction. So it's about this nebulous beginning that leaves one wanting. And then the second half that is this incredibly meticulous fugue that contains so much detail that you cannot grasp it all in one listen. There's almost too much there, you know, where in the first half of the piece there was not enough, one might say. Yeah. And then at the end they all sort of fade out and the whole fugue sort of disintegrates until the piece goes away. I really like that idea. I had no idea it was about Plato's ideas, yeah. but I also like the idea that you don't know which one is wisdom. Is it this Bach fugue, which is very structured, or is it the nebulous 
thing that's actually more like sounds in nature would be. And yeah. Is it the humans are Bach fugue? Yeah. Trying to absolutely make sense of it. And I don't have an answer. I'll let everyone decide for themselves, I think. So how's your life as a composer? Are you, do you work um, other jobs? I do, yeah. I currently work for a theater company in St. Paul called Nautilus Music Theater. I get to learn a lot about arts management, which turns out is something really important for being a composer, but are not a set of skills that you learn in school or graduate school. And then I also teach a course on music technology at the Art Institute in downtown Minneapolis. So between those things and doing freelance work and living very modestly, I am yet alive. <laughs> That's good. Yes. <laughs> How do you balance your time between work and writing music? I actually recently gave a talk at a career day <laughs> at a school in a suburb that uh, a friend of mine works at and asked me to come in and talk about, you know, being an, an artist, I guess, as a career. And that's one of the things I talked about. I made a pie graph of where my income comes from, and I broke it down into teaching art, managing art, and making art, and how I spend my time as another pie graph. And the making art category was much bigger in my time spending than it was in my income, which I think is fine and not unusual for someone in my position. But it depends. Sometimes I have the approach of you know, I'm going to work at the theater, I'm going to teach this class, and whenever I have time left over, I'm going to make my music. And other weeks, I have the approach of, I am going to make my music, and whatever time is left over, I'm going to dedicate to these other things. That's and, nice you have a flexible schedule. Yes, it is very nice. I'm not sure how successful that approach is, because then things get neglected, and when you have a lot of stuff going on, this tends to happen. I guess the answer is I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> sure. I, I think I work the best when I have day chunks of like, this is what I'm working on today. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I write music best when I wake up at like, you know, 10 o'clock, have my coffee, watch the daily show. And then like 11 o'clock, I sit down in my office and I start working and I have like seven hours or like 10 hours, you know, I can just work that mm -hmm. day. That's when I write music the best, but it becomes increasingly difficult to find those times. Yeah. I'm pretty young still, and I am very much enjoying my current existence. I know that soon I'll need to begin saving for retirement and, you know, having some sort of money being put away and all of those things are important. But I, yeah, I'm very much enjoying my current state, and I'm just going to keep yeah. doing it. Until I have a reason to do otherwise. Yeah. If you can pay rent and buy food for yourself. Right. <laughs> yep. That's, I think, the way to go. Yep. <laughs> Just have to plan. do it. Just have to do it. Well, Ted, it, let's see if any uh, final thoughts that we didn't get to here, but... I don't know. I kind of forgot we were recording a podcast. And yeah. <laughs> it's been a nice conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's been great talking. Yeah. Great to meet you. And yeah, you do. Good luck with your future projects. Thank you, sir. And thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Ted Moore. 
To hear his music, you can visit tedmoremusic.com. If you're a new Composer Quest listener, why don't you say hi on Facebook or Twitter? I'd be curious to hear how you found out about the show. I'll leave you with a section of Ted's newest piece, the 70-minute Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs>